So last week, I closed my sermon with the words, Let no one tell you it is what it is. It was such a good ending, I thought. It came to me as I stood here in the pulpit. But really, who am I to tell you what you should think? It was a little fire and brimstone-ish, I thought. But what I was trying to say was that God is so big and so great and so expansive and everywhere that there is always more to what we see. And it takes courage and chutzpah to see beyond what we see. Believing there is always more, even when it may be out of view. Always more to the doubt that comes to us all. Always more to the sorrow than the sorrow itself. Now last week, one of the stories I told you was about Custer Lowe. He was the pastor of the Presbyterian Church on the Navajo Nation. Um, Doug, it's in Ganado, Doug actually served in the Navajo Nation. He knows it well. And uh, being somewhat geographically challenged myself, I refer to it as being northwest of Phoenix. It's actually northeast of Phoenix. If you're in the desert, it's good to know where you're going uh, or anywhere else for that matter. But I spoke to Custer this week. And you probably remember that I told you he had experienced some neurological challenges when I saw him a couple of years ago. And he's still in a pulpit, he's still preaching, there's still more to Custer than that illness, and as it turns out, there's more to Custer than leukemia in the third stage that he is now dealing with. And so I told him that I would keep him in my prayers and I would ask you to do the same and to keep all the folks there in your prayers as well. So sometimes the lectionary flows smoothly from one week to the next, and so much of last week's comments blended into this morning's. It reminded me of the Bronx, where it began for me. And here's how. Psalm 84 reminds me of my first experience in church in the Bronx when probably in first, second, or maybe third grade, when I could sneak away from the nuns, I love you nuns, but when I could sneak away during lunch, I would go into the sanctuary to pray. And I remember what that felt like even to this day. So when I read Psalm 84 that begins with, how lovely is your dwelling place. My soul longs for indeed it faints for the courts of God. And my heart and my flesh sing for the living God. I knew that. I didn't know those words, but I knew that. I still feel that. And in this case, the psalmist is highlighting the travels of the pilgrims who are on their way to the temple. And just think of what it must have been like for all of those folks traveling to the temple over that long journey to finally enter into what must have been a spectacular setting and to stand there and say, how lovely is your dwelling place. The temple which at different times had the Ark of the Covenant 
And in that room, the Kodesh Akadodeshim, whoops, Kodesh Akodashim, the Holy of Holies, where the temple, where the ark resided, to walk into there and to feel the presence of God in that way must have been something else. Now, I think all of us have probably traveled long distances to get somewhere and upon arrival have felt fulfilled, having the journey been completed successfully. And I always remember those times. And I remember that it was much more than I even thought it was during those initial visits. In fact, it was the beginning of my own journey, one that continues today in learning to sense and feel the presence and the awe of God's presence in ways that do not require the four walls of a building, a particular place, or anything else. Awe, wonder, joy. But there are laments in this psalm too. The verses that we didn't read that end the psalm, the next several verses, there's some laments in there. There's some sorrow. For the Jews, they went through a lot, as do we on our journeys. And some of the lines that follow say this, Blessed are those whose strength is in you. In other words, when you ask for God's help, you ask for that help and that strength is there. Blessed are those whose strength is in you who have set their hearts on pilgrimage, regardless of what it takes. Pilgrimage, as they pass through the Valley of Baca, they make it a place of songs. The autumn rain covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before the God of Zion. Now, I spent some time looking, researching what the Valley of Baca was. And it turns out that it may very well be a place. There's some, there's some stories that it's a place where there's some battles with the Philistines and different descriptions. But metaphorically, in the Hebrew, it means place of deep sorrow. And in the Septuagint, in the Greek, it means place of weeping. And so the psalmist here is talking about, I think, going through those places of deep sorrow and deep weeping on our way, on our pilgrimages to Zion, to the house of God, to the presence of God. It is part of everyone's journey. And in fact, one of the resources I use says, quote, that by passing through the experience of deep sorrow, righteous folk can make it the source of life. But that sorrow can be the source of life when we look to God in those places as we travel through those trials. I recently finished a new friend's book in which he talked about the death of his wife for many years of cancer. He wrote that as he accompanied her on that journey, that he he talked in the book about how he discovered the fullness of their love during that period of time. That something had been completed in those final days in being present with her. I marveled as I read that at the deep understanding 
of what I think the psalmist reminds us of here. The psalmist writes of what folks then knew and what we know as well, that we come to find God in many ways and on many paths, including those that lead through loss and sorrow, deep sorrow and weeping. There is a sweetness to the reminder that the greatest of joys and the greatest of sorrows both lead us to the same place, the holy place and the holy people gathered in the presence of God. And so in some ways, it's here that I need to stop. I need to stop because I don't have the words to describe what happens for me from there. I just don't. I have come to know God beyond all of the descriptors of God, or at least to know that my descriptions of God are totally inadequate. That whatever the words are, whatever the hymns are, whatever the writings are, whatever the paths are, the traditions are, all of those blended together, as wonderful and informative as they are, they do not come close to what it is that God is. And so I end up in this place where I just stop. And my heart takes over. And my soul takes over. And that inner voice sort of takes over. And, and the formulaic prayers, which are wonderful, and the dogma, which is so informative and important, suddenly doesn't mean anything close to what it is I know by being in a place that recognizes just how far beyond anything I know God is. Psalm 30, verse 12, says it. I will extol you, O God. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. Well, you go ahead, soul, because I don't know what to say, so you take over from there. It's just fine. This is the God that I understand and yet wouldn't dare attempt to define. This is the God that every way you pray and every way I pray and are, are just heard with such joy and gladness that it is praise from the soul. And it took me for a while to realize that this is how Jesus taught. He talked in human terms about God and what God is like, like a parent or a guardian. In heaven with a house with many rooms, in a, in a place that I prepare for you, I used to ask the good sisters, how do I get my things there? Because see, I had a couple of things I really wanted to bring with me. Jesus taught in these ways that never defined God. The idea of defining God. Who would want a God you could define? So Jesus' teachings of God always acknowledge that there will forever be more to God, to the Spirit, and to the risen Jesus than we could possibly know. His parables are about these things. And they all come back to the greatest of commandments which he taught. To love God with all your heart and all your soul. And to love one another as yourself. And to know that that is enough. Everything else is a bonus. So here we are in this parable in the temple. In the Pharisee, the tax collector. You know, there's no real indictment here of the Pharisee or the tax collector. It's more about what happens when our praying perhaps becomes too formulaic. 
when it becomes too dogmatic, when it becomes too much of a public demonstration. In Matthew 6, 6, Jesus says this, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men and women. Truly, I tell you, they already have their reward. But when you pray, go into your inner room inside. Shut your door and pray to your creator who is unseen. And your creator who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not babble on like pagans, for they think that by their many words they will be heard. I have a friend who was going through something, said, I've been praying all day, over and over and over for hours. I've been saying the same prayer over and asking God for help, asking God for help. Sometimes that's important. But in this case, I knew the person. And I said to them, don't you think God heard you the first time? God hears it all. Sometimes the prayer is, God, please help me, and then to go on, knowing God heard the prayer. So Luke is reiterating a teaching of Jesus that maybe reflects the appropriateness, the reality, that we are absolutely right to feel overwhelmed by God. Overwhelmed in such a way that one is humbled when we pray, that we do not assume that our status or our achievements have elevated us above others in the eyes of God or even in the eyes of others. In some ways, this says what many of us know. There is so much more to who and what God is in our relationship with God and with salvation that when we feel the longing for God in our lives and when we sometimes feel like God may not be present, that God is there. That this is more than the ability of ourselves to always sense the presence of God. Regardless of our ability or not, God is there. So whatever effort we make, in whatever way we pray, the lesson seems to be, pray humbly. Be in awe. Know that it's greater than anything you could possibly understand to be in the presence of God. Do not lose sight of one another in lifting ourselves up to a status of our own or others' makings. And as the commentator of another of my resources suggests, they say, quote, the Pharisee had enough religion to be virtuous, but not enough to be humble. And as a result, religion drove him away from the tax collector rather than towards him. I think it is always about moving away from ourselves and towards others. It takes courage to see how humility is to be sought, how it brings us closer to one another, and in so doing, the presence of God. It takes courage because it takes risks to let go of some of the comfort to move toward others of some of the comfort of the status and the position and the sense that we're okay, got the list checked off. And it takes prayer 
And it takes one another gathered here as you are to help make it all happen out there. It is why the Valley of Baca has no hold on us. And as a friend of mine likes to say, thank God for God. Amen. Amen.